If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We are moving into chapter 13. We will be dealing with the first two verses of chapter 13. If you would, please follow in the reading of the Word of God. And uh, and we'll pray. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said... When present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. What a text, eh? Let's pray. Father, help us to hear what the Apostle is saying. Father, let us understand the urgency of this day. Father, I fear for your church. There is a... uh, Lack of discernment and a complacency. And Father, I pray that you take whatever measures are necessary to strengthen each and every one of us, that we may run the race that is before us. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand. To you, my King, my Lord, my Savior, in Christ's name, amen. We're in a section that actually started in verse 19 of chapter 12, and it runs to the end of the book. And it basically is dealing with the process of sanctification. And he starts there in verse 19 saying, all of you be upbuilded. Okay, that's strengthening you. I want to make you stronger. The passion of a true pastor is for the people to be spiritually strong. Okay, I don't want you to live by my faith. I don't want you to live by my knowledge. I want you to live by what the Word of God says in your convictions. Okay? My convictions will not save you. All right? It needs to be done in your convictions. And we started this a couple of weeks ago on the first step that we have in the process of sanctification was repentance. We needed to change. Every one of us in this room came to salvation at a different point in a different way. I tell people that there's innumerable ways to come to Christ. There's only one way to God, and that is Christ. But how you come to Christ is as individual as the stars in the heaven. And everyone in this room individually came, had a different way to the person of Jesus Christ to the foot of the cross. All right. Now, once you get there... Then the fun begins. Because at that point is when God starts saying, you know, that right there is of no benefit to you. And he starts the pruning process so that you and I will bear much fruit, as Jesus said. All right. And, and we all do it. And, and it comes in groups. And come, sometimes you'll have a little dry area where you think you just wandered around Mount Sinai. And then there's other times when you're bearing all kinds of fruit and all kinds of wild and woolly things are happening. And you're just doing your little spiritual happy dance everywhere you go. OK. The process of sanctification from God's perspective is absolutely complete. You are only clothed in Christ's righteousness. Okay, so how holy are you? Well, you're only as holy as Jesus Christ. Well, that's crazy. Well, I tell you what, (laughs) you may not act like it. You may not believe that, but it's still true. I've already looked at this over and over and over. And and I know what happened to us. The the church fell into dispensationalism. What was that? It's like a mud hole. No, it's a. Dispensationalism means there's distinctions. Okay. All right. And there, I'm a, I'm, I, I, I call myself a leaky dispensationalist. Okay. I believe there's a distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. I believe there's a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. Okay. But I'm not really going to get into a whole bunch more because I've seen people who will say that the letter of Hebrews is irrelevant to the Gentile church. I've seen people who say, well, you don't have to worry about the gospel or acts because that's in the past. We need to worry about the church now. And so now that you're taking in and you're pushing dispensationalists into a place. But what a dispensationalist has a basis on, they say that at this point on your timeline, you got saved. Okay. And right, that was right there. You were justified before God. And then you have this timeline 
that you live your life. And that is your time of sanctification. You are growing in understanding. And then you die and you have this thing over here that they call glorification. Because now you're in heaven. Now, we all look at that and say, well, yeah, you know, I can see where that works. I can... Yeah, 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 because there's times when I'm growing, you know, and then I'm looking for glory. The only problem with that is it's not biblical. Because he says, sanctify him with truth. Your word is truth. Okay. And you are sanctified now because God clothed you in Christ's righteousness. All right. And Jesus says, my glory, I give you. It doesn't say I'm going to give you. And then Paul to the Romans says, you are being conformed into the image of Christ. You behold as in a mirror are being transformed from glory to glory. Okay, so I understand why we deal with it because there's days, right? We don't feel sanctified. The other day, a guy pulled out in front of me on my motorcycle down here by the railroad tracks, and I did not feel sanctified. Okay? I felt like I wanted to introduce him to my Lord. Okay, but I never thought better of it. Okay? But, but it's stuff like that, that there's, Paul calls it, you're in an earthen vessel. Okay? With a precious treasure inside. So, when you start thinking about sanctification, you can use the f- phrase set apart, because that's the same word. You can use holy. Okay? All of these fit the same word of sanctification. But it's sanctification that makes you and I able to stand in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is just this simple. Okay? It's truth versus a lie. Okay? Now, your adversary... Wants you stupid. Okay? And he is very, very successful. I mean, if you think about it, how did it start? This little phrase, and it's been going around centuries. Has God said? Now listen, when he first used that, how big was the Bible that they had? Do not eat of this fruit. That's it. And then he all, or you'll surely die. And the adversary came in and said, has God said? And it was obvious she didn't know what God had said because she said, he said, I would surely die if I eat of it or touch it. And God never said nothing about touching it. Okay. That's the battle. We already looked at it. Chapter 10. It is speculations and lofty things raised up against the true knowledge of God. And the only way that you can defeat that and stand against that is being stronger. You must be sanctified. So what happens is the first step we looked at is repentance. All right. And we understood that there was a lot of pain in repentance. Okay. We understand that, but repentance is for the purity of the church, the purity of the church, which brings me to where we're going to start today. I won't get into this as as an overview of what we're moving into, but the second stage is discipline, discipline. We all like discipline, don't we? Right? We all all think it's great. You know, go ask a little kid, how do you know that's hot? And it's never because my mommy said, don't touch it, it's hot. It's what? I stuck my hand up there and yell. Well, did your mommy tell you not to do that? Yeah. Well, that went over well. Okay. How many times have we been told, you probably shouldn't do that. And you're like, it'll be all right. Right? That's discipline. Discipline. I... uh I have been in, this is the only church I've ever been in, been a, a part of. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, maybe I'm sheltered. No, nah, not really. I've been around. But anyway, I, 
I, I listen to everything and I watch what's going on. And in the, the 20 years plus that I have been a pastor, but in the 35 years that I have struggled to walk with my Lord, I have seen a lot of things happen in the church. And, and it's, it's, it's really astonishing, to be honest with you. I have seen so many seminars, conferences, books, you just name it, on the remaking of the church. That's the big issue right now. Did you know that? They're doing polls right now that says that church attendance right now is lower than it's ever been. And I don't know what a millennial is, but I don't think I am one. So, you know, they said that the, the millennials are... Non-God. They don't, uh, they're not interested in God. Alright? And they said that if you keep this trend up and you lose an entire generation, then the church dies. Okay? The remaking of the church, everything that I have seen to date is for marketing the church to a contemporary society. That's where you can come up with the term contemporary worship. It is based for the society. The society. We philosophers will tell you that we are in a postmodern time. Okay? What it means is it's a fancy way of saying there are no absolute truths. Whatever you want for truth, you can have it. But I'm going to have my little basket of truth over here. Okay? And that's, you go look at, uh, truth is relative. Morals are relative. I get bombarded by what I call self-styled experts. They're all coming out of the woodwork right now. And it started with a pollster named Barna who proclaimed that the church's very existence is threatened unless she is reinvented. All right? Here's a quote, okay? Christians. Quote, If it is to survive, the church must reinvent itself. It must become more culturally, culturally relevant and improve the packaging and promoting of its message, unquote. That is the underlying theme that is in the body of Christ right now. It's alive and well, and some would even say prospering. Another well-known author that everybody has heard of, he has written the book, The Purpose of Whatever, The Purpose Driven 40 Days or something like that. I'm a firm believer that God does it in 400-year cycles, not 40-day cycles. But anyway, I can prove mine biblically. Here's his statement. Here's his statement. Now, what he's teaching was amazed. You know what amazed me? To His, his first rules came out, purpose-driven church. It crossed every denominational barrier. There was not a denomination that did not embrace it. Okay? Listen to the theology that's behind it. Quote, you must target one's felt needs. If I know a person's felt needs, I can lead anyone to Christ. Unquote. Really? And yet that man's teaching is across all denominations, even into the Catholic Church and the Adventist churches and the Jehovah's Witnesses. 40 days of purpose. You know why they say 40 days of purpose? They said if you do it for 40 days, it becomes a habit. Really? Really? I've done things for like 90 days and it never became a habit. But it did become a vice. <laughs> okay? You see what I'm trying to get at? You're trying to be relative to the community? The church must have more effective forms of communication. Now think about that for a second. I look around right now and see so many innovations by experts 
And they are all have a passion to save the church. They want to keep the church from oblivion. I have seen, they've got a new one out. It's called the virtual church. You can go to church on the internet. And you can sit there, and of course at the end of the whatever little dealy thing that you get into, you can type in your text on your phone, your credit card number, and donate in a love to the internet church. I have seen a drive-in church. That you drive in, they have a big screen up there, you sit in the parking lot, you got a speaker there, and of course a little card slider so that you can donate to the giving, and you can go there, you never get out of your car. They said that the next big movement, if they're going to attract millennials, that they're going to have to be able to get them to be able to worship in the comfort of their own homes. You know, that's kind of cool if you think about it. If I'm sitting there on my couch in my pajamas and you're not meeting my felt needs, I can close my browser. What a deal. There is a movement right now, and I have heard this over and over and over and over and over in our community, that the church has to be less confrontational. I am trying to figure out when was she confrontational. We have a growth here in Castle Rock that is just, it's been going on for a while, but it's kind of picking up steam. They call them house churches. And basically what it is, is a bunch of people sit around their house and they talk about spiritual things. They don't want no structure. They don't want no authority. They want no control over their lives. They just want to talk about spiritual things. The big emphasis right now is that they don't want anything of your traditions in your church name. Okay? They don't want to have any historical background. They don't want to have any theological traditions. And if you just look around, that is exactly what's going on. Cherry Hills Community Church is Presbyterian. Okay, nobody knows it. The people who attend that church don't know it. I know it because my brother-in-law's big muckety-muck Presbyterian, and they had their conference there, their national conference. And then I should have caught on that they didn't have any way to baptize. So I'm like, yeah, you guys are Presbyterian, man. You sprinkle them with a squirt gun. So I know how that works. Okay. You know why? There's a church in Castle Rock right now. Okay. Big church. Okay. It has no crosses. You can't find a cross in the building. You know why? That hurts people's feelings. It's too confrontational. Okay? The reason that they're taking the name off of it, I mean, there's a church here that took church out of their name. We don't even want to be called a church. And uh, I know him, and he asked me about it, and I said, I never thought she was a church anyway. But anyway, okay? But they want unbelievers to feel comfortable that's what they believe that the church is for that is the question what is the church they say that now there's a movement that preachers must be replaced you must have presenters no preachers you shouldn't use notes And don't try to hide behind a pulpit. Stand out where everybody can see you. I even know a guy right now who came from uh, Dallas. He sits in a, uh, a... Dallas is a preaching school. Okay? He sits in a wingback chairs and dialogues with the congregation over what he's been looking at. They're convinced that this will generate, this is what they say, this will generate a more positive response from the hearers, unquote. You've heard it said, don't preach to me. Preaching has become a bad word. Sermons have become obsolete. 
And they have concluded the reason that they're obsolete is that people, modern people today, contemporary people today, don't like one-way conversations. Also, you have to be careful when you get into excessive references to scriptures. This confuses people. And that should be avoided. You know what? They're even at a point now that they distrust systematic exposition and that it should be completely done away with because people are sporadic and they get irritated to miss a few messages. And that's the pastor's fault. Listen, for the experts... Okay, for the experts to sit and, and state this. Now, I was, I'm amazed because they put it on the Internet. I've heard them say it personally. I have heard them. They write books about it. For them to say that the church is going out of business unless it reinvents itself. The experts say this at best is arrogant. If not blasphemous. God's plan formed in eternity past to call out a people for himself to redeem them and bring them to eternal glory. And that will be stopped if the church doesn't reinvent itself to worldly expectations. Really? This church that Jesus promised to build, he promised that it could not be overpowered, and even the gates of hell couldn't stop it. But it can be ineffective if it lacks marketing and sensitivity to its society. Really? You're telling me I got Baptists in our name and we're never going to grow because they are of the Baptist tradition. Hmm. This church that Jesus purchased with his precious blood? Acts 20, 28. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of excessive scripture references. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. He purchased it with his precious blood. The church was precious, purchased with his. And you're telling me that the Lord can't handle marketing? There are theories of the modern church growth, and they raise some serious questions. Who determines what the church is supposed to be? Okay, because I've heard it now. Well, we all have our own level of creativity. Creativity? Listen, dude, if you're expecting me to be creative in preaching, you guys are in trouble. Many of these come from polls and surveys. That is the big thing now to do a demographic study. Uh, and, and I heard a kid just, he finally admitted it to me. And I knew, I knew exactly that he's here for the money. But he said, no, we did a demographic study of Castle Rock and it can afford another church. I said, well, when your sending church quits paying you, will you still stay and fight for the souls? It seems to be a curse that I have because every time I say that to somebody, of course, they all say yes and they all close within five years. I'm putting the woe jammy on them. So many suggest. See, here's the idea. Church is a business. We are in the business of Christ. We are selling and marketing Christ. That's the mindset that is out there right now. Listen, this is across all the lines. All the lines. Find out what the customers want and give it to them. Right? The only way to be relevant is a good marketing program. A marketing strategy. How do I get people? Listen, you guys thinking I'm crazy. Look around. I meet with these people weekly. I hear it weekly. I see the fruit of it weekly. I deal with it daily. 
church is not a business. The church is not selling a commodity. The church's priorities are not determined by surveys of unbelievers. Or even non-repentant Christians. The church's priority is only by the truth of God's word. That is where the head of the church will show his will. What we, what the church is desperate for, is a need of consistent, faithful exposition of the mind of God. This book is God's thinking. This is what God wants. And when you expose it and explain it, you are explaining the mind of he who died to purchase the church. It is described in the scriptures. And only then will the church be strengthened. Only then will it be equipped to counter a society with moral and spiritual issues that we have in our time. The reason that our country right now looks so... I don't even have a word anymore. Every time I think that, okay, now I got it. Off it goes and I don't know what it is. But the reason that you see the mess that we are in is because I can directly chase it back to the pastor's decline spiritually that began in the early 1960s. And we are at this point now because the men who claimed to be standing for the word didn't. And they compromised. And they said, what does the society want? And the society told them. And they said, excellent. We'll do that. And look at our society. The church must submit to the authority of scriptures. And when she does. Listen. If you're coming here. For uh, sound information. You're wasting your time. Okay. That ain't why we're here. You know what we're here for? Do you know why the church meets? Personal holiness. That's why we meet. Personal holiness. Sanctification. That is the key to the church's blessings. That is the key to the church's impact in the world. Personal holiness. Even though scriptures is adamantly clear about this, holiness is the central to the Lord's will for his church. Do we understand that? And you can go to a church right now and what do you see? Do you see holiness? It's amazing. And it's like, but but society gets angry if you point out problems. As Christians this this week I ran into. What were you saved from? You know what? I asked seven different people and none of them gave me a biblical answer. Listen, if you think you were saved from hell, you're wrong. That ain't why you were saved. Okay? You were saved to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? That's why you were saved. And you were saved from your sin. Not your spouse's sin. Not your kid's sin. Not your employer's sin. From your sin. That's what you were saved from. One of the most neglected things in the church growth movement is what I call confrontation, restoration, and discipline. The reason that you discipline someone is to restore them to the union with their Lord. When you have a sin that's sitting right in front of you and you refuse to deal with it, guess what? You ain't going nowhere. 
holding people accountable for sin. I remember uh, one of my trips to Russia. It was back uh, when the scandal was going on at New Life. They had heard about it. Of course, that was true. So they asked me about it, and I told them, I don't know. He says, well, how can that be? And I said, uh, well, you know, there's no accountability. And, uh, you've got a big group of people, and everybody thinks he's got the red phone to God. They're going to do whatever they want. And he said, uh, that could never happen in Russia. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's pretty audacious saying right there. He said, no. He says, it starts with dating. We don't. You're like, oh, well, that, that would be a little tough to push in America. And he says, here's what we do. If a boy and a girl like each other, then they go to church together. And the only time they're allowed to be together is when they're in the church. I had a couple that were, I, they did get married eventually, but I had, they weren't married when I was there. And it was a man and a woman. And I was getting ready to catch a train out of the town that I was in. And it was cold, dreary. There's piles of snow everywhere, fog. And it was about 1130 at night. And I went to get, uh, Larry took me to the train station. I was getting on the train and. Uh, they said that they don't know when it's going to end, that Misha and uh, Alexi was trying to get there. And I was like, well, when? And they said, well, they had to find a couple that would be willing to escort them down to the train station. They were not allowed to walk to the train station by themselves. You're like, wow. He says, we do it for the protection of the next generation. You're like, huh? And I said, well, does it work? He says, well, if it doesn't and they end up getting married, they're only allowed to miss two Sundays when they're not together. If the husband and wife miss two Sundays, the third Sundays, the elders of the church go to the house and stay there until it's reconciled. Wow. Okay. You know what we call that? Intruding into my privacy. And they're saying, no, we're doing it for the holiness of the bride of Christ that he died to purchase. Let me tell you something. I have brought up church discipline before. We've had some issues in other churches and it's brought up in our prayer time. I explained to them what the Bible says about it. And I'm always told that that will only alienate people. I even had a young kid the other day tell me that Confronting sin is so outdated. And I, I just looked at him and thought, dude, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. See, the people want their freedom to do whatever they want. Scripture is clear. Churches have become a fellowship of independent members. Okay? We want minimal accountability to God and nothing with others. Okay, listen, I can discipline somebody here in this church right now. There's 54 other churches, evangelical churches in this town. They can go to a different church every Sunday for more than a year with no accountability. Now, there was a time years ago that I had to deal with a situation like that. The guy left the church, uh, left his wife for a, a high school sweetheart. He decided he'd leave the state. I found him. He's in West Virginia. I sent a letter to the pastor of the church in West Virginia. and said, he's under church discipline here. I just wanted you to know that. I don't know whatever happened, but I did my part. I had a young lady one time sent me a restraining order. So you know you're accomplishing something. You have to. Listen, we have an entire generation of pastors right now and church members. I don't want to let you guys off the hook. They have no experience, have no experience in church confronting sinning people. We don't confront sin. That's uncomfortable. But did you hang on a cross for it? Because that would be uncomfortable. Personally dealing with sin is essential for the growth of saints. And if we can't confront it, 
then how are we going to call somebody to repentance? What would you do if you had to remove somebody? That's awkward. I remember going and getting a young lady <laughs> out of a guy's house. Me and one of the elders. We went and got her. We found a place for her to live. I went and told her. I said, you know what? God ain't honored in this. She started crying, packed her bags, threw her in the car and took her to where we were hiding her. I remember going and getting a little girl out of a bar. I never seen anybody get that white seeing me ever. Just poof. Hi there. Remember me? My pastor's in a bar. Yeah, and he's not happy because I got woke up. But anyway. Biggest problem facing the church is not cultural insensitivity. It's insensitivity to sin. We ignore it. If we ignore it, it'll go away. You confront it for the purpose of repentance and restoration. Sin keeps your relationship with Jesus Christ marred. It doesn't grow any better. doesn't get any better. You ain't going nowhere until you deal with it. Confronting sin, that restores that relationship. And you know what? If they don't want restoration, then removal is next. The most visible symptom that I see in the churches today and its moral and spiritual decline is a disaster because we won't confront sin. We don't even want to talk about it. We don't even use the word. Listen, that shows a utter lack of concern for holiness. It shows a utter lack of reverence for the Lord of the church. And then I don't even want to talk about their understanding of scriptures. Failing to practice church discipline is evidence of the church's worldliness. It's why I look around today and I see a very weak, impotent church. It don't have power. The only power that the churches have now is if I can get enough unbelievers in here to give $10 then I'll have cash, and the more people I get in here, the more people that I can bring in here, and the more cash we have, and we can do things. Let me share with you a couple of verses, because I want to share with you some verses. First time the church is ever mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, the word is ever used in the New Testament. Okay? And it is given... An instruction. Okay? The word is ecclesias. Called out ones. Okay? It's different than Israel because it is a blending of Gentile and Jew. Alright? First time that God ever mentions the word church, He is instructing the church. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he listens to them, tell it. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the Church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Don't you find that fascinating? The first time the church is mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ is for the purpose of discipline. Discipline. Now then, how important is this? Well... Let me go to the Lord of the church in all of his glory. Revelations chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Revelations 1, beginning at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze. And when it had been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I fell on my, I saw him and I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive. Furthermore, I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write these things which you have seen. You know what's amazing right now? What happens in chapter 2? He starts writing seven letters to who? And he calls all but two to what? Repent. Why? Look at his picture there. It shows his concern for the purity of his church that he stated in 18 of Matthew. Verse 14, that white hair, that is the ancient of days. That's Daniel's vision of divine wisdom in Daniel 7, 9. The laser eyes, the burning eyes, in verse 14, he searches the the depths of the church. I know your works. I know your works. This is his omniscience. It equips him and gives him the right to judge his church that he purchased with his blood. Verse 15, the glowing bronze feet, it shows his judgment. Listen, brothers and sisters, church discipline is not optional. It's commanded. You know what? God takes this seriously. I mean, do you... I want you to understand how serious God takes this. He took two unrepentant believers and struck them dead in front of the church in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Ananias and Sapphira. How important? Well, I tell you what, if you're Ananias and Sapphira, I bet you have a different view of how important it is. Listen, our letter here in Corinth, this place is an exceptionally wicked, wicked place. Okay, I cannot even begin to give you the images of what this city was like. Okay, but you, none of us have ever been to a place as Corinth. All right. Understand that the people in this church had come out of paganism. Paganism thrived on sexual immorality of all types, idolatry. And you know what happens? You're not going to believe this. But when a person comes to Christ, do you know that they a lot of times will bring their immoral practices from their former lifestyles into the church? Did you know that? Who would have ever thunk it? First Corinthians, Paul confronts. Much of this sin. I mean, you go, you go read through the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, and you're like, <laughs> why don't you just stop there and say, hasta la bye-bye, dude? Because you guys are nuts. But there were still false teachers in the congregation, and what they do is that they encourage sin by giving lies. The spiritual war that you're in right now is truth versus lie. Paul was concerned not for cultural relevance, but for holiness. That should be the passion of every believer. Holiness. I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul understood if Corinth failed to live godly lives... The church would dishonor the Lord. 
and the church would be ineffective. I know a whole bunch of places right now that are meeting that have large numbers and are completely ineffective. Completely ineffective. Let me tell you something. A church that tolerates sin undermines the gospel which proclaims transformation in Christ. Did you hear what I said? The church that tolerates sin undermines the gospel that proclaims transformation in Christ. How important is this? Well, Romans chapter 6, verse 16 and following. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you are now committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Did you get that? Right? Do we all understand what rights a slave has? None. Whatever the master commands. That mirrors our Lord. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27. That he might present to himself the church. In all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. True church consists of believers whose primary objective is not to make unbelievers feel comfortable, but to bring believers to spiritual maturity. Every single one of you, regardless of your chronological age, my concern is your spiritual maturity. Paul has an intense concern to edify the church in Corinth. He wants to move him from the lies. That's what started in chapter 12, verse 19, and runs to the end of chapter 13. What? It's the elements of, of sanctification. First is repentance. Second is discipline. And we will look in the next two weeks the motive for discipline and the method for discipline. Because we need to look at the motive first. Because I know that there's some people who just like to embarrass people. Or gossip. I like to gossip. I have people who occasionally come to me and say, I saw such and such and you need to pray for them. No, I shouldn't. I'm going to pray for you. Okay. If God showed it to you, then guess who's supposed to deal with it? God shows it to me, I'll deal with it. That's no problem. And I go right through Matthew 18. If you won't listen to me, I'll bring somebody else alongside and you can. And you know what? And then you can go visit all 54 churches in Castle Rock and have a blast. But understand this, you'll be ineffective. What do we do with those who sin and refuse to repent? And people say, well, you kick them out of the church. No, actually, if the church is standing on God's principles, they will leave willingly. I've never really had to pitch somebody out the door. Felt like it a couple of times, but, but I never had to. Okay. Because usually, if you're preaching the Word, then you're preaching the holiness of Christ. And the holiness of Christ is offensive to non-repentant sin. And so the person usually... That's why I tell everybody, if you miss one Sunday, you're not going to go to hell. If you miss two Sundays, you're still not going to go to hell. But usually by the second Sunday, the third one's easy, and you're going to start feeling like you're in hell. It's that simple. It's that simple. You forsake the fellowship 
Guess what? It's just you and Satan. Right? And he likes you. He'll take care of you. Right? That's spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters. What is my motive? What's my method? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the bride of Christ, your church, that you purchased with the precious blood of your son. Father, I pray for everybody here. We're not called to be sinless, but we are called to deal with it. Help us, Father. We are weak in these vessels, but we have a very precious treasure inside. Help us to be conquerors, super conquerors. And Father, that people will see us and see the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bring many who would crave that. Thank you, my Lord. I thank you for your word, your church, your spirit, and your redemption. In Christ's name, amen.